0: Good morning, take your Bibles now please and open them to the ninth chapter of the book of Acts as today we will see in the first nine verses the movement from Saul of Tarsus being an enemy to becoming an ambassador as he is surprised by grace on the road to Damascus. And probably if you look in the front of your uh, bulletin, there's a quote there by Derek Thomas on uh, the significance and profundity of Saul's conversion. He truly is a trophy of grace. And uh, we want to focus our attention today upon God's work in his heart. And it will be very encouraging for all of us. here now the word of the Lord as we read from chapter 9, verse 1 through verse 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that as we open the word, you will open our hearts and open our eyes to see the beauty of the truth and the glory of Christ. And may you work mightily in us by your spirit as he takes the living word and works to show us both our need for Christ and his excellence for us. In this we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. The conversion of Saul is obviously an inc- and without dispute a gracious act of God. Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes Paul, oddly enough, Paul, the Greek name for Saul, means little one, the little one. And so Saul was a remarkable person, um, he was brilliant. He was well trained. He was an up and coming Pharisee. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, thus, the name Saul, the only Benjamite that made king in Israel. He was um, tutored by Gamaliel II in all of Judaism, and um, he was um, sort of the uh, self appointed agent of seeking out and destroying the movement called The Way. But on his road to Damascus to destroy the church, he meets the risen Christ, and his life is turned upside down, and the Jesus whom he persecuted became the Jesus who saved him, the risen Christ. And for him to arrive at that point took nothing short of a miracle, As it does for every single one of us in John chapter 6 verse 44 Jesus says this no one let me again say that for emphasis no one can come to me unless the Father draws him no one that's categorical that means not anybody anywhere anytime in this universe can come to Jesus In a saving way, unless the Father draws him. And the word draw here is the same word that's used. Most of you do not have wells, I assume. My grandmother had a well. And I can remember going to her house and drawing water out of the well. And here's what happened when I did that. I didn't go stand over the edge of the well and say, Okay, water, we're thirsty, we need you. Please, please, please let me woo you to come up out of that well. No, I dropped a bucket in, I took the rope, ran the rope through, drew the water out of the well. That's what the word draw there means. It means someone is pulling you along. Someone is exercising influence over you. Jesus also said in John chapter 15, verse 16, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. And if there's one thing these texts emphasize, we do not initially seek God unless God comes and seeks us first. The Bible is very clear about our natural state and condition. No one seeks for God, Romans 3.11. That again is categorical. Since no human being will naturally seek God, those who are seeking do so because God is at work on them. If you meet someone who's open and interested and sort of looking for a better understanding of who God is, and what the meaning of life is, and all those kinds of ideas, you are talking to a person in whom the seeker is already at work. And that seeking, if that person belongs to him, is irresistible. It will overcome all resistance. He opens our hearts. We'll see that later on in Lydia's case. We only love him because he first loves us. Throughout the years, Christians have differed over whether this grace is resistible or not. But here, we do agree that we cannot turn to God unless he comes to us first. These two verses illustrate it very well. Saul, get this, was completely hostile to the gospel and the church he was in no way open he was in no way seeking at all he had no need for Jesus because he was righteous through the law. That's one of the ways you know you're a legalist. One of the ways you know that you're depending on yourself to obey the law to be right with God is you don't really have a great need for Jesus. You like him. You, you, you know you're supposed to care for him but he's the need is not desperate because you're doing okay without him. And, and Saul rather than that being like that He was willing to travel 160 miles to neighboring cities to find Christians and to bring them home for punishment. So he was out herding up those who had uh, dispersed from Jerusalem to neighboring cities around Jerusalem and bringing them home to go before the Sanhedrin council and probably many of them would be killed. So his opposition to the gospel was fanatical. It was zealous. Thus his conversion is the proof of the power of God's sovereign grace to bring people up short and to take the scales off of our eyes. C.S. Lewis in his account of his conversion in Surprise by Joy, the last chapter, likens God to a fisherman after a fish or a cat after after his mouse or to a pack of hounds after his fox or to a divine chess player putting him into checkmate you know one of the uh, great moments in history was uh, the moment that led Francis Thompson to come to know the Lord Francis Thompson's early life was one dead end after another He studied for the priesthood, but he never completed the course. He studied medicine, but he also failed at that. He joined the military, but was released after one day. He finally became an opium addict living in London, but he could not get away from God's persistent love for him. In the midst of his despondency, Thompson was befriended by an associate who saw his poetic gifts, and eventually Thompson was able to share His experience in verse. His famous poem is, of course, The Hound of Heaven. Many of us have experienced the truth of Thompson's powerful words. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways. of of my own mind, and in the midst of tears, I hid from him. And under running laughter, up-visted hopes, I sped. And shot precipitated down titanic glooms of chasm fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after. Christ is always the hunter. He's always the initiator. He brings us to our knees, acknowledging how desperately we need him. If there ever was anyone who had come to an end in, in himself and who was truly poor in spirit, it was Saul. But it took a lot to get him to where he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted for loss for the sake of Christ. When we're sharing our faith with our neighbors and our friends and our family sometimes it appears that we are dealing with people who are just very unlikely to ever believe the gospel we look at them and we think well you know they're just so hard or they're just so hostile or you can't share with them you can't talk to them they're just so resistant pastor now there are plenty of people who seem to be wild and rebellious and hostile and very far from the faith and it's typical for even christians to look at them and say the case is hopeless there's nothing we can do we dare not even consider trying to share the faith with them because it's only going to upset them and it's only going to make them harder and it's only going to make them meaner and more hostile Saul represents a particular kind of non-Christian that often intimidates Christians. He's brilliant. He's a leader. He's well-educated. He's a a member of an elite club. And and believers often either despise or fear non-believers who who, uh, hold those ranks. But this incident proves that everyone... Is unlikely to believe since every conversion is a miracle and therefore everyone is equally likely to believe and we can have hope for everyone so the miraculous nature of conversion if you know anything about the state of your heart as the Bible describes it anytime anybody comes to Christ it is miraculous a miracle has occurred and that's what conversion is In Saul's account of his own experience, he mentions in Acts chapter 26 a different passage. He mentions that Jesus said to him, it is hard for you to kick against the goads or the pricks. R.C. Sproul in his work on the book of Acts mentioned, talked about it this way. He said that obscure reference to goads may not be meaningful to us, But in antiquity, much of the produce was hauled on ox carts, and sometimes oxen, like mules, were very stubborn, so the drivers had to whip them a bit to get them going. Sometimes the touch of a whip would make the oxen all the more stubborn, and they would kick against the ox cart, which could totally shatter it. To prevent that, the drivers mounted goads or spikes in the front of the ox cart and when the oxen kicked against the goads, the discomfort from doing so would get them moving. Sometimes when an ox kicked against the goad, the goad would pierce its foot and cause it more pain, and so it would get angrier and kick the goad again. Jesus was saying, Saul, you stupid ox, You're no different from oxen that kick against the ox goad as you carry on your hostility toward me. Resisting the lordship of Christ is not only sinful, it's stupid. Because God has raised him from the dead, placed him in his right hand, and given him all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's called every person to bow his knee before him and call him Lord. To resist him is foolish. So though he kicked against the goads, it is remarkable as we observe and watch how God dealt with this man. Although uh, we we can say what were the specific goads that Paul was kicking against and wrestling with. Uh, In general, the reference to goads must mean that Saul of Tarsus was actively And actually wrestling with doubts and conviction about Christianity. In fact, his fanatical opposition to Christianity evidently was in reality his effort to silence the voices in his head and his ambivalence. What might some of these goads have been? Well, Romans 7.7 indicates that Paul had come under great and tremendous conviction that he could not fulfill the law of God. I want to take a little bit of time to look at this from Romans chapter seven, seven, and just to get you to see exactly how God had been preparing Saul for this encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus long before it happened. This is Paul's own words. Therefore, since the essence of sin is the desire to play God, and to, for God to have no infringements on our sovereignty, then every law will stir sin in its original force and power. The more we are exposed to the law of God, the more the sinful force will be aggravated in reaction. Paul says he, he once was alive apart from the law. His once indicates that he's referring to a past experience in Romans 7. There's been a lot of discussion about the meaning of, I was alive apart from the law. It's impossible that a Jewish boy from a devout family would have been apart from the law in the sense that he didn't know it or that he didn't try to obey it. There would have been no time in Saul's unconverted life in which he would have been unrelated to the law almost certainly, apart from the law, meant that he had not ever seen the law's real and essential demands. He had not realized what the law really required. He saw a plethora of rules, but not the basic force or thrust of the law as a whole. He had no understanding of holiness, of what it meant to love God supremely, or what it meant to love his neighbor as himself. Thus, He was apart from the law. What does it mean that he was alive apart from the law? Paul is probably referring to his own self-assessment and self-perception. He felt he was spiritually alive, that is, pleasing God, satisfying to God. He's telling us that his perception of being alive was due to his ignorance of what the law really asked for. He says this in Romans 7, but when the commandment came, I died. I died. That would mean that subsequently something happened to show him that he wasn't pleasing God at all, but that he was under condemnation. In very graphic language, he says, I realized I was dead. So Paul is saying in effect, though I thought I was doing quite well spiritually, I felt good or better than most, but then I was overwhelmed with a sense of failure and condemnation. What caused this change of consciousness in Paul? The commandment came. Verse 9 of Romans 7, the commandment came. It is obvious that God's law had come into the world centuries ago in some way, So Paul could not be talking about the commandment coming into the world in some way. Instead, he meant the commandment came home to me. Although Paul had a conscience, the demands of the moral law hit him really hard. In other words, he came under what we call conviction of sin. Remember, it doesn't mean that Paul had never sinned, nor that Paul had never seen the commandment before. Rather, he finally realized that through the law and seeking to have a relationship with God and please God was really spiritual death. He realized he was dead, he was condemned, he was lost because of his complete inability to keep the law of God. Leon Morris says when the commandment came it killed forever the proud Pharisee thanking God that he was not as other men and sure of his merits before God it killed off the happy sinner for it showed him his seriousness not so much of sin in general as of his own sin. The coming of the law in that sense always kills off our cheerful assumption of innocence. We see ourselves well, what we really are, sinners, and we die. It marks the end of self-confidence, self-satisfaction, self-reliance, self-justification. It is death. That is what it is. And so, in summary, to die, in this sense, means you see that you're a moral failure, you see that you're lost, and you cannot save yourselves. Sin is not merely an external act. But it has to do with the desires of the heart. The real trouble with the unregenerate or unbelieving is that they do not know and understand the truth about sin. They have their moral code. They believe that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And they often sin by wrongdoing. But that is not to understand sin. The moment you understand the true nature and character of sin, you become troubled about your soul. And you begin to seek for a rescue or a savior. So anyone who is not seeking a savior does not understand the true nature of sin. It is the peculiar function of the law of God to bring such an understanding to your mind and conscience. And so, we know that Paul had been a proud Pharisee, but we know also that he was having severe problems in the area of his conscience. So, no wonder he was vigorously persecuting Christians as a way to eliminate his self-doubt. But then there was Stephen. Paul witnessed that. We know that Paul heard Stephen's speech, which indicated that Jesus came to replace the temple as the final atonement and to fulfill the law. Saul had seen the amazing joy and love on Stephen's face as he was stoned. If Saul had been under deep conviction of his moral inadequacy and heard Stephen's proclamation of an entirely old, new way, to to approach God, then certainly he would have been deeply pricked and deeply troubled, and these were Jesus' goads in his mind and his conscience. So Saul's conversion, what I'm driving at, is not as instantaneous as it looks or it might appear. Jesus had been drawing Saul with his grace very gradually, and the dramatic Damascus Road experience brought it to a head. So conversion virtually always has a period of divine preparation. Now what does that mean? That means when your unbelieving friends get more hostile, more resistant, more hateful, more angry, maybe God's at work in a way that you just don't see, that doesn't make sense to you. Why? Because they're trying to cover up. they're trying to cover up the accusation of conscience and guilt, because they know. They know. And, and therefore, not everybody, let me also say this, this is a pastoral moment of insight. You do not have to have, quote, a Damascus Road experience in order to be a Christian. Not everybody's conversion is this dramatic. Even in the New Testament, you'll see numbers of conversions that are nothing like this. This was in a class by itself. Because Paul was not, Saul was not only converted, but he was commissioned to office as an apostle. And so Jesus had been working in his life. Now, some have said that Saul's conversion is very strong piece of evidence for the supernatural origins of Christianity. It is evident from the book of Acts that Saul often told the story of his Damascus Road conversion. He does it in Acts 22 and in Acts 26. In every one of these three accounts of his his experience, his traveling companions are specifically mentioned. And what they heard and saw is specifically mentioned as well. Each account mentions that he had companions who saw the light and heard the voice and fell to the ground from amazement at this phenomenon yet though they heard the sound they couldn't make out specific words they saw the light but they couldn't make out a specific figure why were these companions so critical and why did Saul always include them exactly what they experienced and what they did not Saul was an extremely public figure and his conversion would have created an extremely unpleasant situation for the opponents of Christianity when he immediately began to publicly proclaim that he had met the risen Christ. No Jew believed in a crucified Messiah, but he met him on the road to Damascus. There would have been an enormous desire on the part of religious authorities to totally disprove his story. Obviously, from Saul's subsequent career, they could not. He publicly mentioned the fact that he had witnesses of this encounter and that he would only do that if it bolstered his case and if they were available for cross-examination. So Saul's conversion was another empirical historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you know Christianity rises or falls on the validity and the historicity of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And here Jesus' inveterate enemy is brought to his knees on the Damascus road by a vision of a Christophany and appearance of the risen Christ upon the road. Jesus makes a very interesting statement to Saul. He says Saul is persecuting. Why are you persecuting me it's surprising since Saul thought he was persecuting what a heretical Jewish sect this is the reason that when the voice says why are you persecuting me Saul answers but but who are you I'm not persecuting you there are two very important implications from this exchange first though we are seldom conscious of the fact that we're all enemies of God and hostile persecutors of God until we are reconciled to him through the gospel. Romans 5.10 says, for when you were enemies. What he's saying is the natural heart of man is at opposition against God until we are reconciled to reconcile means to change a relationship from enmity from someone being my enemy to someone becoming my dearest friend paul says in no uncertain terms that we're all the lord's enemies romans five ten, colossians 1.21. our problem is not merely that we are failing god but we're fighting him fighting against him Our natural state is not just that we break whatever rules they are and fall short of being a good person, but that we resent God's control over our lives. And we set ourselves up as our own Savior and Lord. And we resist any exertion of His authority or power over us. We are at enmity with Him. We are God's enemies. That is what Paul says. And we resent the fact that though... We attempt to become whole by saving ourselves through our goodness and holiness. Paul insists that every religious person who seeks to obey the Bible are enemies of God as long as they seek to save themselves by their goodness and holiness. They're trying to be their own saviors and thus they feel continually angry at God for not giving them their due in life. Spiritually, the Bible clearly says we are hostile and we attack God. Now, I, I know that that's hard to see without the aid of the Spirit. But that is the truth. That is where we are until God turns on the lights and we see it. And so reconciliation is when god turns us and conversion occurs is when god turns us away from hostility to embracing him in his mercy and grace but second why do you persecute me is on the one hand first very bad news but second it's very very good news and let me tell you how for jesus is saying in this text that he so identifies with his people that he sees anyone assaulting us as assaulting him. This has many wonderful implications, but I wanna talk about maybe three of them here. Number one, it shows that to become a Christian is not just to join a club or an orga- organization or a good group, but rather it is to be grafted into a body called the body of Christ. When we receive the Holy Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ, that unites us to all other Christians in a unique spiritual bond. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen tells us that. Second, this shows that Jesus does protect us. He takes any assaults on us as his body personally. Now, we must be careful not to assume that this means we are exempt from harm. All you got to do is keep reading the book of Acts, and it shows that Christians are tortured and die. But this means that Jesus is always present with us, even in death, because we're precious to him. And third, it hints that not only is Jesus identified with us, but that we are identified with Jesus. In other words, because he is loved by the Father and because he is at the right hand of the Father, then we are loved by the Father and we are at the right hand of the Father. Do you understand what your identity is united to Christ? You know what sin is? Sin is trying to construct or establish or build an identity apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. That is insanity. But that's what most of the human race is doing. Trying to develop, structure, build, construct an identity. And especially in postmodern living, we see that bleeding over into every category. You determine your own gender. You determine who you marry or who you sleep with. You determine for yourself whether or not... um, whatever quality of life you decide to choose for yourself and you try on a number of different identities until you find the one you think fits but the great glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is Christ himself becomes for you your identity and who you really are is not found by trying on identities but rather by resting in the person and work of Jesus Christ there you will know who you are. By the way, that identity was not my original idea. I must give credit to Soren Kierkegaard uh, who was a very interesting person, by the way. But that's true. It's truth. That's truth. I am in Christ and by being in union with Him, uh, I get to know the Father's love and, and get to know joy in a way that Jesus knew it. Well, one of the grand results of Saul's conversion is forgiveness. He experienced the joy and deep comfort of forgiveness. Saul turns from being an enemy to an ambassador. Jesus' conquest Of Saul of Tarsus is of central importance in Luke's portrait of what Jesus continues to do and teach after his enthronement in heaven. Saint Paul or Saul is not only the Apostles to the Gentiles commissioned to carry salvation in Jesus's name to the outsiders, he is also the crucial exhibit of God's gospel of grace living the message out that he proclaims. He preaches that those whose relation to God is based upon law and my keeping it are under a curse. Galatians 3.10 says, The law of God cursed is everyone who doesn't do everything written in the book of the law. For his own zeal for the law had made him a cursed persecutor of Christ. He announces reconciliation as a gift from God for uh, Gentiles who have been enemies for himself. He had received God's mercy and peace even though he had been God's enemy, destroying God's church and persecuting God's Messiah. Paul never got over that. He never got over that. If you read his book, by the way, he is my favorite biblical author, one of the first people I want to see in heaven after Jesus is Saul, Paul, the apostle. I wanna see him. And, and, and maybe I'll have that privilege, I don't know. But I'd love to see him. I think that man got it. And I, I have in my library probably right now 50 books on Paul and his theology that, that would overwhelm anybody to try to read. But I just think this amazing transformation uh, from, of an enemy who becomes an ambassador. So Paul stands as a prime example to his own day and to our day of the futility of human religious effort and the surprising mercy and grace of God. Well, what's become of the justice of God? Or his wrath that avenges Saul's insults to God's honor and his assaults on God's people. It has been satisfied by that one event That probably had convinced Saul for so long that Jesus could not be the Messiah because of the curse in the tree. If the crucified Jesus is indeed the anointed one who is pleasing to God, the risen one who confronted Saul in a blinding glory on the Damascus road, then the tree of curse can only be explained as Paul does in his writing to Galatians Christ became a curse for us how can the god of justice declare the worst of sinners saul to be the righteousness of god unless he also made jesus who had no sin to be sin for us the union between christ and his people that Saul first glimpsed in jesus's rebuke why do you uh, persecute me operates in two directions Jesus counts his people's sufferings as belonging to himself and he counts his own suffering and death as belonging to his people. A time is coming, a time is coming when the Lord Jesus will destroy those enemies who persist in hostility toward him and his people. It is just for God to repay affliction to those who afflict you and to relieve to you the afflicted together with us. But Paul also proves to us in his words and his own experience that at the present time, God is conquering his enemies in surprising ways. Condemning them to death for their sin, then executing them in the cross in Jesus Christ, their substitute, and raising them with him to behold his glory and bear witness to his grace. Many Christians have not shared Paul's experience of a violent hatred for Jesus being brought to a sudden reversal by God's arresting grace. But every child of God can see in Paul an example both of God's judgment as he blinds him. I'll talk about that more next week, the blinding of Saul and more about uh, his groping in darkness and more about what that means as we see Ananias is sent to Saul but what I what I really wanted to communicate today is that an enemy of God becomes God's ambassador because of God's surprising grace. Since God saves by grace, there's hope for everyone. If God saved any other way, there would be hope for no one. But there's hope for everyone, even that person in your life who you think will never, ever come to Christ. You still have hope that God could, by His grace, save the worst, which is what Paul called himself. I am the worst. And yet through Christ He is the dearest. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this time to open up our hearts to the power of your Spirit and your Word. And we pray you would work that which is well-pleasing in your sight in us. That the Spirit would continually do what he was sent to do to show us Jesus. His beauty, his glory, his lordship, his desire for us. His presence with us and in us. And may we, because we've been here today, uh, become those who love him more because he first loved us.